Throughout history, there have been countless wars. But I would say there's been no greater war than World War II in terms of how much of the world was involved in that war and how many lives were taken. This war involved approximately three-quarters of the world and an estimated 55 to 80 million people died. It was known as the Axis versus the Allies. The Axis nations were led by Germany, Italy, and Japan. The Allies were led by the United States, England, and the Soviet Union. In the midst of this war, there were many important moments, like Hitler's lightning march across Europe. There was Pearl Harbor and the Battle of Midway. But the decisive battle was D-Day that began on June 6, 1944. D-Day was the largest air, land, and sea operation ever undertaken. 5,000 ships, 11,000 airplanes, and over 150,000 servicemen. The battle was a decisive victory for the Allies. Now, obviously, there was still fighting that remained. But the war was effectively won on D-Day. Within a year, Germany officially surrendered on May 8, 1945, what is called V-Day, Victory Day. The leader of the Soviet Union, Joseph Stalin, said, quote, The history of war does not know of an undertaking comparable to it for breadth of conception, grandeur of scale, and mastery of execution. This one battle was crucial, was the crucial event for the entire war. Likewise, there has been a long spiritual war waged by Satan against God, which we find in the pages of Scripture. There have been many important events along the way. But the decisive event occurred with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yes, there remains ongoing conflict But Jesus will put all of that to rest when he returns. The war, though, I want you to have firmly fixed in your mind, was won when Jesus died and rose again. The war was won. It was won. Everything changed. Sin was atoned for. Death was defeated. Satan's accusations of guilt against God's people were silenced by his his grace. Jesus' cross and resurrection was the ultimate D-Day in terms of the plan of God for salvation. And now we wait for V-Day. In our passage today, we explore heaven's perspective on why Jesus' death and resurrection matters so much as the most important event in history. How it should continually transform us. It wasn't just something we celebrate at Easter, but this is something God wants us to have continually mold and make us and affect how we live so that we live in the light of His victory. And why we will celebrate this forever and ever endeavor. So let me invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 5 as we continue our series. Take one of the Bibles in front of you. If you don't have a Bible there, easy to find right there in the back of the book, in the book, huh? Right? Revelation, just go to the back and turn to Revelation chapter 5. Now to refresh where we've covered so far, 
revelation was given to the Apostle John, that Jesus, the glorified Jesus, told John, I want you to write what I'm about to share with you. And so we saw that in chapter 1, chapters 2 and 3. Jesus gave a message to seven churches that were located there in Asia Minor. These were specific churches, but we also know the number seven all over the book of Revelation uh, symbolizes fullness and completeness. And so these messages were for all churches and for all time. Now we saw in chapter 4 that there's a major transition in the book of Revelation. As John is given this vision of heaven, and these two chapters are really closely connected. And if you want to understand the book of Revelation, you need to understand chapters 4 and 5 because they lay the foundation for everything that's going to follow in the coming weeks ahead. So in Revelation 4, John has this vision of God seated upon his throne. Remember, the image of God's throne appeared 12 times in this chapter alone. God was showing, look, I am sovereign over all of the universe, okay? Remember how John saw angelic beings surrounding the throne, such as the 24 elders and the four living creatures. If you didn't listen to that message, I encourage you to go listen online to understand who those, who those angelic beings are, because they show up all over the book of Revelation. And so these creatures, they worship God as holy and creator and eternal. But as of yet, they have not declared that he is what? Redeemer. Redeemer. And that's where the scene shifts in chapter 5, as the focus now turns to Jesus, our great victorious Redeemer, and the next stage of this vision of heaven. So there's three parts to our passage this morning. The first is the search to open the scroll, then the Lamb takes the scroll, and then the response of heaven. So everybody with me there in Revelation chapter 5? All right, let's dive in together. So the first part is the search to open the scroll. Let's read verses 1 to 4 together. John says, Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven and on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open it, to open the scroll or to look into it. So notice how John begins by saying, I saw. I mentioned this last time, that this is a key way to understand the book of Revelation. That little phrase, I saw or I looked, it appears again and again in the book of Revelation. As it moves from vision to vision to vision, John just goes from boom, 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 boom. And there's not necessarily a chronological order of this. It's kind of a broad chronological order, but it's more just moving from vision to vision to vision. This is evident in our passage today because John's vision is focusing on Jesus. Jesus is death and resurrection that occurred 60 years prior, but it's foundational to understanding what's going to unfold in the chapters ahead. So don't think of it like a time-lapse camera that goes in a strict chronology, but it's more like a family photo album that has different topics, but it moves in kind of this broad chronology all the way to the end of time, 
Okay, so John is given this new vision here, and he sees God the Father on his throne. Remember what we said last time, no one can see God in his fullness and his essence and live. But at times, God reveals his presence to let you know he is there in a special way, right? And so John sees God on the throne there, and he sees this in his right hand, a scroll that is rolled up and sealed with seven seals. And of course, your natural question is, what is this scroll, right? What's going on with the scroll? Well, I think the scroll basically is God's plan for this world from the time of Jesus' death and resurrection all the way to his return. It's his plan that he has in store, both judgment and salvation. And basically, chapter 6 all the way through the rest of Revelation is the unfolding of this scroll and what God is going to be bringing about. Now, if you were paying attention, you noticed that the scroll was written on the inside and on the outside. That's kind of interesting, right? Why would you write on the inside and the outside? I think this is symbolizing the fact that God's plan is complete. (laughs) There's no blank spots there. He's not trying to figure out what's still to do. There's no human additions that we're going to bring to it. It's already planned out in the mind of God. It just needs to unfold. And the seven seals, you would put a seal on a document, a wax seal to hold it in place and make sure that you couldn't open it. And so that seven, of course, symbolizes fullness and completeness, showing that this plan is completely inaccessible except to the mind of God, unless he wants to open it. Now, next week in chapter 6, I hope you'll return, because in Revelation 6, the seals begin to get opened. And we see what's going to start unfolding. Very fascinating. But going back to this passage in verse 2, the angel asked, who's worthy to open this scroll, right? And to see what's in it. And no one in heaven or on earth is worthy to open this scroll. No human being is worthy because we're sinners, right? We can't open the scroll. No angelic creature is worthy, probably because they're not human and they can't stand in our place for our redemption. And so in in light of this news, John takes it very hard, doesn't he? He doesn't just kind of shed a couple of tears. He is weeping. He is distraught. Say, John, why do you take it so hard? Because John at that moment thought there's no hope for humanity. There's no plan of salvation. Everything's sealed off. All I see around me is death. All I see around me are, is false worship of these pagan gods. All I see around me is people bowing down to the emperor like he's God himself. This is all that I see. Is this all there is, God? And so he's broken. We should kind of have a similar thought, right? If we looked around and thought this was all there is. But praise God, God isn't done, is he? So the first was the search to open the scroll. The second part is the lamb takes the scroll. This is really the centerpiece of our passage. Verses 5 to 7 say, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures are among the elders... And among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right of hand of him who was seated on the throne. 
So one of the 24 elders assures John that he doesn't need to cry anymore because someone is going to open the scroll. Who is it? Well, it says there several titles for Jesus. One, he is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Why that title? Where does that come from? Well, in Genesis chapter 49, Jacob speaks about the 12 tribes of Israel, his 12 sons, and what was going to become of them in the future. So he says a word about all the different 12 tribes, predictions about them. Verses 9 to 10, he, spe- he speaks of Judah. He said, Judah's a lion's cub from the prey, my son, you have, con- you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. So did you get that? From the tribe of Judah was going to come the ruler over the nation of Israel. And of course, Jesus comes along. What tribe was he from? Where did he descend from? Judah. And he's called the lion. You know, when you look at a lion, you think of just pure power, right? Able to destroy any opposition. And that image is given of Jesus. He is the lion of the tribe of, of Judah. He's also called the root of David. And so that messianic promise kind of narrows down a little bit here. Starting with the tribe of Judah, David, the king of Israel, he was from the tribe of Judah. And God promised David that from his descendants, one would come along who would be the Messiah and who would rule forever and ever. Jesus comes from where? The line of David. So he is the line of the tribe of Judah. He's from the root of David. And then it says, as it says there, he, Jesus has conquered and can now open the scroll. You say, well, how did he conquer? Well, the vision progresses in the midst of all these angelic creatures. You expect a roaring lion to jump out, right? What does John see instead? A lamb. A lamb. Now, obviously not a literal lamb symbolic of Jesus. We've seen a lot of different titles so far for Jesus in the book of Revelation. It's the first time he is called the Lamb, but it's not the last time. In fact, this becomes the most popular title for Jesus. 28 times, a number divisible of seven, no surprise there, that Jesus is called the Lamb. Why is he called the Lamb? Well, Adam kind of stole a little of my thunder with some of the great songs we sang. We sang about it a little bit early already, but let me flesh it out a little bit more. The lamb is very significant in the Old Testament, right? Shows up in different ways. The Passover lamb in the book of Exodus, right? When its blood was put over the lintel of the house, God spared the nation of Israel judgment that came to Egypt because of the blood of the lamb. In the temple and in the tabernacle, every day a lamb would be sacrificed to atone for the sins of Israel. And then when we look in Isaiah chapter 53, there's this incredible prediction hundreds of years in advance of a Messiah who was going to come and who was going to die for the sins of his people. And when Isaiah describes him, he says of this, says this, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So all of this Old Testament imagery is coming to bear. And Jesus says, look, I am fulfilling it all. He is the lamb who atones for sin with a final, perfect sacrifice. And the, Old, and the New Testament writers clearly saw this. When John the Baptist sees Jesus, what does he say of him? He says, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 
Paul says that Jesus is our Passover lamb. He is the lamb of God. And he gives a little bit more description. He says that he had died. This lamb had died, but now he was alive. He'd come to life. This is so important in the book of Revelation. Again and again, Jesus' resurrection is all is central to who he is and his victory. Remember back in 118, Jesus said himself, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. The living lamb. He didn't just die, he rose again. John said he had seven horns. Horns were symbolic of power. So Jesus has perfect power. Perfect power. He also had seven eyes, as it says there, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. We've already seen that the seven spirits of God are the Holy Spirit, right? And the, and the third person of the Trinity. So I think the seven eyes symbolize Christ's complete knowledge. He knows everything that's going on. And the Spirit is working with Christ as the persons of the Trinity work in complete unity and harmony in a way that we can't even fathom. Then finally, John says that the Lamb went over to God and took the scroll. He is the only one. Are you listening? He is the only one who has the authority and the knowledge to go over to God, take the scroll, his plan for redemption for the entire world, his plan of judgment. He's the only one who can take it, and he takes it from his hand. And he said just as much in his own life. Remember after he rose from the dead? Remember how he got the disciples together? And he told them before he commissioned them, before he went up into heaven, he said, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. He has it all to bring about what he's going to do. So the lamb takes the scroll. Third part of the passage is the response of heaven. And here you kind of see this ripple effect in three stages. It begins with the four living creatures and 24 elders, spreads out to an innumerable number of angels, and then all of creation will respond in worship. Let's read verses 8 to 10. It says, When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from every tribe and language and and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And so these angelic creatures, these these 24 elders, these uh, four living creatures, they fall down before the Lamb and they worship Him. Just as they worship God the Father in Revelation 4, they're falling down and worshiping the Lamb. Angels don't worship, right? Other creatures, they worship God Himself, and so they're worshiping the Lamb. Jesus, of course, took on humanity, but He is fully God and fully man. He's not just a man. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a teacher. He is God in human flesh. And the angels are just prostrating themselves before him. John describes these these angelic creatures a little bit more in their worship. He says that each of them had a harp. Each of them had a harp. Now, probably not best to envision them sitting down. You know, sometimes with those really big harps that people strum, make beautiful sounds. These were probably more like handheld harps that people would play and worship and so forth. But they were worshiping God. By the way, we often have in our culture the image of people floating around in the clouds playing harps. But notice here in Revelation that it actually says it's the angelic beings that are doing that. Maybe we'll do it too. But in the Bible here it says that it's the angels. The angels are also holding these golden bowls full of incense. 
You say, why incense? Well, in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle and temple, they would burn incense because it was a sweet, pleasing aroma, right, in the midst of their presence, being in the presence of God. David comes along in Psalm 141, and he talks about his prayers rising up to God like incense before him, that his prayers were sweet to the Lord. That's a great image, isn't it? To think of our prayers rising up before God and being pleasant for him, to, to listen to and, and to be answering and responding to. And so these angels are presenting these prayers of God's people before the Lamb. By the way, um, we shouldn't think that angels are the ones that we should pray to. The angels are presenting these prayers in some type of symbolic fashion, but they're not mediating our prayers, right? We, we don't pray to angels, we pray to God. And in fact, the Bible says very clearly in 1 Timothy 2.5, it says, For there is one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. The angels are presenting the prayers, but they're not intervening. They're not interceding. That's only Christ. Next, angelic creatures, they declare their praise. They say that they have a new song. They have a new song. Now, in the Old Testament, they would have a new song when God brought some about deliverance or some sort of way of showing his power and his might on behalf of his people. And now they're saying, look, we have even a newer song than that because Christ has conquered here. And they're declaring his praise. And you say, what are they singing about? They declare that he is worthy to take the scroll. Why? Because he died. And he ransomed the people from God from all over the world. Let me ask you a question. What does it mean to say that God ransomed his people? What does that mean? Well, on our own, this is something we have to understand what the Bible teaches. We are enslaved to sin. We're enslaved to sin. We have sin on our own, uh, our own nature, and we act on it too, don't we? We're sinners by nature and by choice. That's why you don't have to teach people uh, how to be proud or how to gossip or how to lust. It's just innate in us, right? And we act on those things. So we are, the Bible says we're enslaved to sin. We don't do what we know we should do. We act on those choices. And because of that, we incur condemnation before a righteous God. So we need to be ransomed. We need someone to come along, and Jesus does this. He ransoms us, church. He frees us from the power of sin. It's still there, but the power's broken. Is it broken in your life? And he has paid the penalty so that you are washed, cleansed, and perfectly forgiven. We are ransomed. And he is worthy because he has ransomed his people. He goes on to say that not only has God, uh, Christ ransomed us, but he's made us a kingdom and priest to God. We've already bumped into this in the book of Revelation, this notion that goes back to the Old Testament where God chose Israel to be a kingdom of priests to the world where they would show God to the world and God would show himself to the world by their conduct and their godliness. But Israel fumbled the ball, right, in their idolatry and their rebellion. And so now we come along and we see the church is the kingdom of priests. We are supposed to be God's representatives to the world to show them who we are, that God has changed us. And he's made us this now. It's not just in the future. We are a kingdom of priests. And he also says one day we're going to rule over this world in a full and final way. Next, the, the worship extends to all the angels in heaven. 
John writes, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So the angels join in beyond just the 24 elders and living creatures. Just these other angels are worshiping God. And I think there's a lot of them, wouldn't you say? It says there's thousands and thousands of them. Myriads and myriads. You say, what's a myriad? I looked it up in the standard kind of biblical Greek dictionary. It says it's a very large number, not precisely defined. That didn't help a whole lot. But, but it says the same thing in other parts of the Bible. Daniel 12.10, Hebrews 12.22. Talks about around the throne of God are just innumerable angels all praising the Lamb. What a scene. Notice that their, their worship is sevenfold. Did you catch that? They say he's worthy to receive power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. So Jesus' church is worthy to receive our perfect, full, complete worship. We may not have that in our hearts sometimes, but God wants us to be at that place because he is worthy to receive it. And then finally, the worship extends to every creature in the universe, in heaven and on earth. John writes, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. So all of creation <laughs> praises God and the Lamb forever. You know, the, Psalm 19 says the heavens declare the glory of God. So maybe all throughout this universe, the stars and the heavens, maybe the different animals and the sea and the birds and all that in their own distinct way, there's just this universal chorus of praise that's going on about praise to God and to the Lamb forever. So let's keep that in mind as we prepare for next week. In Revelation 6, when the seals begin to be broken. In closing, though, I just want to encourage us to take a moment and to truly stand in awe of Christ, who's the centerpiece of this passage, right? He's the one who takes the scroll and is going to complete the plan of God. As it says there, there's this question, who is worthy? He is worthy, isn't he? He's worthy because he's God and fully man, fully God, fully man. Only Jesus is like this. Let that sink deep into your heart. And he's worthy because of his sacrifice on the cross. You know, he is the lion, right? Infinitely powerful and has all authority and so forth. But yet he also combines his infinite power with his infinite love. Amen. By coming like a lamb willing to die for the world. That's fascinating. It's fascinating because there's no king like this Jesus, is there? Kings just simply destroy their enemies, don't they? They don't die for them. But that's our Jesus, isn't it? And that's why he's so unique. That's why he's so special. Someone captured this well in a poem that compares Jesus and Alexander the Great who was the famous Greek ruler who conquered much of the known world at the time by the time he was 33 years old, and then he died. 
course, very similar to Jesus's about his age. The poem says, Jesus and Alexander died at 33. One lived and died for self. One died for you and me. The Greek died on a throne. The Jew died on a cross. One life, one's life triumphed and seemed, excuse me, one life's triumph seemed, the other a loss. One led armies forth, the other walked alone. One shed a whole world's blood, the other gave his own. One won the world in life and lost it all in death. The other lost his life to win the whole world's faith. Jesus and Alexander died at 33. One died in Babylon, one on Calvary. One gained all for self, and one himself he gave. One conquered every throne, the other every grave. The one made himself God, the God made himself less. The one lived but to blast, the other but to bless. When died, the Greek forever fell his throne of swords. But Jesus died to live forever Lord of lords. That's it right there. The lion and the lamb who paid that sacrifice. You know, I was thinking about sacrifice and it brought me back to D-Day. You know, I think of the soldiers who fought at D-Day and I see some of those pictures of graveyards, you know, full of crosses there, soldiers who died, or those pictures of the barges as they're about to land on the beaches of Normandy and those different places. My heart is just overwhelmed at their sacrifice for our nation, including me. I owe a debt to them that I cannot repay. I can just simply be grateful and say thank you. The famous uh, military historian Stephen Ambrose said, at the core, the American citizen soldiers knew the difference between right and wrong, and they didn't want to live in a world in which wrong prevailed. So they fought and won, and we, all of us living and yet to be born, must be forever profoundly grateful. We should. But likewise, in a far greater way, Jesus' sacrifice should overwhelm us. The king of kings, who has all authority, was willing to condescend to such a degree to come to this earth and to live in our place and lay down his life as a ransom for sin and to buy his people and to reconcile us to God. And his sacrifice rescues us from the coming wrath of God, which we will see in the chapters to come. And the book of Revelation is strong and severe. But Jesus stood in our place to take away the wrath of God. So we cannot repay him. We cannot repay him, but we just simply say thank you. And because he is God in human flesh, we don't just say thank you, but we also worship him with every ounce of our being. So Jesus is worthy because he is God in human flesh. Jesus is worthy because he died for us on the cross the lamb for you and I. And he's worthy because of his resurrection where he conquered death. He gives us hope. Neil Shively battled cancer for the last year, but in the face of death, he and his wife 
constantly spoke of the hope of Christ that it brings. It's real, church. It's real. It's not just some type of psychological ploy. It is real truth, and it changes your life. And that's why you can have hope in the face of death. So Jesus' death and resurrection, it changed the world and it changed you. So let us rejoice in it this morning. And let us meditate on who Christ is. And let us live as the church that God wants us to live as victorious. He didn't win the victory so that we could walk around in defeat. He wants us to be the church victorious. Because he is worthy. For someone here today who's not become a Christian, Jesus indeed reigns on the throne of heaven. He also wants to reign on the throne of your heart. He wants you to humble yourself today and to ask Jesus to take over the throne because he doesn't share it. We mess things up, don't we? And he is Lord, not you. He wants you to get off of the throne of your heart, to acknowledge your sinfulness, to acknowledge how you've fallen short of the glory of God, to acknowledge that you, along with the, you know, your sin is what brought him to the cross, to acknowledge your guilt, to acknowledge that you need to be ransomed, and that you want Jesus to save you, that you believe he is fully God, fully man, who died on the cross to pay for your sins, and then he rose again to show that death was not victorious, but he was. There's no other saviors, friend. You cannot save yourself. It is only Jesus. Acts 4.12 declares it plain and simply. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So that's never become a reality. And this moment now, Call upon the name of Jesus, and he will save you. He is worthy. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you today, and we are truly overwhelmed at who you are and what you did for us. We thank you that you are the almighty lion created this world hold it all together, but yet you entered into this world, died on the cross, rose again to ransom a people for your glory. Lord, I pray today for someone who's never done that, that even now in this moment, they would confess their sins before you and say, Lord, I want you to rule over my heart. I want to live for you and I believe who the Bible says you are. And today would be their day of salvation. And Lord, as your church, God, help us to be just full of awe of who you are and a deep and profound sense of gratitude and a desire to live in the victory that you have purchased for your people. Forgive us for walking in this life with a sense of defeat where you have given victory. Change us, Lord, we pray, by your grace, so that we can be the church you've called us to be. We love you, Lord. We thank you so much. Thank you for this incredible 
vision that you gave to the Apostle John that transforms our heart. We thank you for the Word of God. It is like truly no other book. We ask you to do a work in our hearts today. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.